Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 5. We're doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're in a section where the Lord is taking some of the Old Testament teachings and he's showing the deeper intended meaning of them. He's saying, you've heard it taught in this way, but I'm going to tell you what it's really all about. And so over and over again, he's taking these teachings and he's saying what he demands from his kingdom citizens, what he demands from his followers is that they would have a righteousness that is better than that of people who merely obey the outward realities of the law. He wants it to go down deep. He wants it to change us at the heart level. So this is Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 31 to 37, then we'll pray and we'll get to work. Matthew 5, starting in verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on oath, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for this For it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking as we open your word that you by your spirit would speak to us. We're praying, Lord, that you would help us to be kingdom citizens that would be righteous and displaying what you really want us to be and do. So Lord, we commit our time to you, and we ask that you would help each and every one of us to hear your voice in this moment, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I was sitting with my wife this week, uh, and we were just chatting, and I I was thinking about this weekend, and the Sermon on the Mount, and, and I was like, why on earth uh, did we decide to go through the Sermon on the Mount? Because it actually gets me into a lot of different subjects that are really, really challenging. And she's like, well, you've got no one to blame but you, uh, <laughs> which is very true. So now I'm wondering, why did, it, why did we do this? But here's, here's what's happening. Here in this passage, we're looking at um, the teaching of the Lord himself, and he's going to deal with some things that are, that are difficult, that are hard, and, and I'm very aware of that. And, and like I was mentioning a moment ago, what he's doing here is he's trying to help his followers recognize the true meaning of the law, the true reason for which God revealed certain things and commanded people to do certain things. And so there's a formula here where he's saying, you've heard it taught in this way, but let me tell you what it really intends. Let me show you what it really means. And his goal is that his followers would then have this righteousness that is better than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are just simply managing their outward observance of it. They look good on the outside, but Jesus says in other places, they're actually full of dead bones. They're like a whitewashed tomb. They, they look good externally, but on the inside, they're failing to live up to the intention of the law itself. And Jesus is saying, not so with my followers. I want my followers to actually perform a righteousness that matches up with the character of God. I want it to go down deep. And so here he talks about two different subjects, two different really promises, the promise of marriage, the vows that are made there, 
And then the promises that we make in our regular speech, where sometimes we might be tempted to take an oath or, or swear a vow. And so let's look at those one at a time. Marriage is the first one. And, uh, and <clears throat> let me just acknowledge that this is a touchy subject. So when we think about marriage and divorce and the things that surround that, this is not just an abstract teaching for me. This is, this is personal. As I think about people within our church community, right now uh, there are two couples that have asked me to, to do their wedding ceremonies. And so um, just this week, uh, earlier this week, I did a premarital counseling session with a couple, and I'll do another one here shortly. And, and so there's this reality here about marriage and its significance that's really uh, in, incredible to me that I want to teach in a way that actually is helpful. And then there are also people in our congregation that are experiencing the trauma of potential divorce. And, and currently, people who are dealing with situations where the marriages might not make it. And so for me, this is not this abstract teaching where I can stand up here and say, let me just tell you what the Bible says without really paying attention to the, really, the emotional temperature of our congregation. So I'm, I, I want to do this in a way that, that hopefully is helpful and is true to Scripture and, um, and is sensitive to the reality of the difficulties of marriage. And, and, and uh, anyways, let's get to work then. This is what Jesus says. Here's the popular level teaching. Verse 31. Here's what you have heard. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's the popular level teaching. If you want to get a divorce, there's certain criteria that they would look at from places like Deuteronomy chapter 24 and the things that are taught there and then some other teaching around that. And so in, in the context of this sermon where Jesus is speaking to his crowd, he's saying, I know that you've heard these different things. You've heard that it was said that if you want to get a divorce, here are the requirements for it. And then there was some debate about, you know, what would constitute a legitimate reason to get a divorce. There were two different schools of thought during that day. There was the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And both of them were looking at Deuteronomy 24 and saying that there were things that uh, would bring shame in the, in the relationship. So they want to clarify what is that so that they might be able to look at marriages and, and determine which ones could legitimately be absolved which ones could legitimately result in divorce. And then there's a process for that where in the Old Testament, Moses was told you could give a certificate of divorce to a woman and then the relationship would be over. So what would precipitate that? Now in the one school of thought, it was, they were very conservative. And so, so they said, you know, basically only on the instance of impropriety, only on the instance of sexual infidelity, could you use that as an excuse for a divorce. And the other school of thought said, no, you know, it's, it's dealing with this idea of bringing shame. And there are a lot of scenarios where a, a relationship might actually bring shame on the institution of marriage. And so they kind of expanded it all the way out to if your woman goes outside without makeup on, that could bring shame to the relationship. Or this is even, this one feels silly today, but if she burns your, your dinner that would bring shame on the institution of marriage. And so there's one school of, of thought that was basically like, there are all kinds of reasons why you could get a divorce. And there's another school of thought that thought, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think we ought to try to preserve this thing a little bit more carefully. And so Jesus is speaking into that and he's going, I know that there are different opinions on what would constitute a legitimate divorce excuse, but Jesus is saying that question itself is wrongheaded. 
to look at the institution of marriage and to be thinking about how could I get out of it? He says, that is, that is not right. Look at verse 32. He says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he basically changes the conversation and he says, look, we want to try to make divorce this very easy thing, this very excusable thing. And he just raises it back up to the level of other noteworthy sins. And he says, look, the pursuit of divorce is, is equivalent to adultery. And so he, again, in this instance, he is changing the conversation. And he's, he's now bringing divorce into the light of its true intention. When God is telling us that we, when we make vows, when we make those promises, those are significant vows. Those are significant promises. And in fact, here, he kind of leaves it there and doesn't expand on what, what exactly he means. But later on in the book of Matthew, the, the same conversation comes up and there he expands on it. And so I want to take you there to Matthew chapter 19, and this is what happens there in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? If she burns my dinner today, can I get a divorce? Is, it law- is that lawful? Is that okay according to scripture? And he says, haven't you read? He's saying, aren't you familiar with what the scriptures actually say? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We're going to come back and look at what all of those different things that he said there mean, but it goes on to read like this. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Again, they're appealing to Deuteronomy 24. They're saying, look, we know the scripture too, and this is what the Bible says. So why is it that Moses told them that they could get divorced simply by offering a certificate and sending her away? And Jesus replied, same thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So he is taking this institution of marriage and he's saying, you got to understand what marriage is. If you're thinking about divorce, you have to understand what marriage is. Um, Whenever I do premarital counseling, Uh, Usually within the counseling or during the ceremony, we land here on this passage, Matthew chapter 19, because I've come to believe this very wholeheartedly that the institution of marriage is something that God performs. And so I always bring them here to show them, here's what God means by marriage, and here's what happens during a ceremony, that I stand up there and pronounce you husband and wife and that you would apply for a marriage certificate and I can sign it off as an official minister of the gospel and send it down state. Those things, they're important, but they're not as important as the reality standing behind them, which is to say that marriage is something that God has planned. It's the plan of God. That's why he appeals to that. At the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is an institution that God designed. 
This is his deal. This is his gig, and he cares very deeply about it. This is the plan of God. And secondly, it's the union of two individuals. It's a fascinating thing that happens, but it's described in this way. The man leaves his father and and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. So when we have a ceremony and somebody says, hey, what are some of the different things that we could do during the ceremony? And they suggest, you know, a unity candle or unity sand. Those different symbolic activities point to this reality that two things become one. So they're pouring two different jars of different colored sand into a vase and they're mixing together. And what's happening there is you're seeing a visual representation of what God is saying in scripture. Two are becoming one. So what would it look like to try to parse those things back out? To say, well, okay, now we want to, we want to separate. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's kind of complicated. You've become one. That's not something that's easily revocable. That's not something that you can easily just kind of get, you know, oh, we're going to piece this thing all back out and get it back to two different colors of sand and jars. Two are becoming one, and therefore it is not easily divorceable. He says this is something that God has done. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has performed in marriage is significant. He does it. When, when, when I'm doing a ceremony, that's in my mind. And I'm trying to communicate that to the couple. And I'm trying to say, look, I'm not doing anything special here, but God certainly is. He is joining you two together in this holy matrimony. And so Jesus then is appealing to this reality. Marriage is the plan of God. It is the union of two individuals, and it is not easily divorceable. So marriage then is this sacred institution. So when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's saying, look, my followers are going to make these marriage vows, and they, are the, they need to be the kind of people who make good on those promises, that don't go back on them and say, yes, I'm promising through thick and thin that we will be together indefinitely, but then, oh, you burned my dinner, or we're incompatible, or I'm just not happy. And we say, okay, there's got to be a legitimate excuse for me to get out of this thing. And here, God is reminding us, Jesus is teaching, marriage is a sacred institution. So his followers ought to be champions of it. And we ought to be the kind of people who make good on the promises that we make during those wedding ceremonies. Now, much more could be said, but I do want to spend a little bit of time just unpacking some of the implications here. Um, if, If kingdom citizens are meant to be champions of marriage, then I think that it's fair that we also speak against some of the cultural narratives of the day. If he thinks that marriage is that significant, that he wants to preserve it and protect it, then I think it's appropriate for us as his followers to say, we should try to follow suit. We should try to protect and preserve the institution of marriage, which is under attack. Um, I used to do this in ceremonies when I was younger and dumber. Uh, but I would, I would quote a movie where, do you guys remember, there was a movie where they're, they're standing up there and one of the best men is saying, you can get out of here right now. She's still 20 yards away. Uh, and he's like encouraging, like, hit the eject button here. Let's get out of here. And some of you guys are looking at me funny because you're questioning my selection of movie choices. But um, that's the cultural narrative right now. Marriage is something that we need to be very skeptical of. And if you got a chance, try to avoid it. 
I think that Christians should be people who are, who are champions of marriage and, and acknowledging the goodness, the intrinsic goodness of it and doing all that we can to protect and preserve it. So let me give you what I think is a cultural narrative that we're living in right now and how it manifests in people seeking divorce. One, I, I mentioned this last week. One of the narratives of our society is you can do whatever you want that would make you happy. In fact, you, you need to do that. You do you. You do whatever it is that makes you happy. And then culturally speaking, the biggest mistake that anyone could make would be to try to prevent you from doing what would make you happy. That's the, that's the culture that we live in. That's the narrative that we live in. And so then in a marriage, here's the language, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy. And, and then we look for excuses that would justify dissolving a marriage getting a divorce, seeking a certificate of divorce and sending people away because I deserve to be happy. Well, listen, that, that is not, marriage certainly is intended to bring us happiness. It is an institution filled with joy, but it's also an institution filled with conflict. That's just an assumption in the, in the text here and in the Bible all over the place. Marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. It is going to be challenging, but it, it can bring you happy, happiness. But we should not go into the marriage thinking, here's the purpose of marriage. It's to make me happy. And if it doesn't, then I can easily find the escape hatch and get out. There's a study that was done uh, by a researcher named Wallenstein. And uh, it was with the uh, Center for Family and Transition. Here's what they did. They interviewed 60 different couples so 120 individuals and their children, so 60 couples with uh, children representing uh, 131 different individual children. They interviewed them. This is a pretty unique study, but they interviewed them over the course of 10 years. So couples that got divorced, they interviewed them one year out from the divorce, then again at five years out from the divorce, and then again at 10 years out from divorce. And they asked them a bunch of questions, and they pulled it together and came up with some conclusions. There are a lot of things that they found there. I'm going to share with you three different things that I think are significant. So if we're thinking, I deserve to be happy and divorce would be the way that I could easily become happy, the evidence flows in a different direction. One of the things that they found after interviewing these people over the course of 10 years is that people who experience divorce 10 years later still have unresolved anger, bitterness, and resentment. So you think, I would be happy because my relationship's in conflict, so if I could just get out of it, then that conflict just goes away, and the, the evidence actually suggests otherwise. No, 10 years down the line, you're still going to have problems that you've never really resolved, you've never really dealt with. 10 years down the, the line, that's still going to be going on in the operating system of your soul. There's still going to be unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment there. It shows up over and over again, uh, according to this research. A second thing that I think is significant is that what they found was that only one in seven of these people ended up in a stable second marriage. Only one in seven. So if you think, you know, I deserve to be happy, so I'm going to get a divorce, and then the, the assumption is, then I'll find somebody else, and then I'll really be happy. Well, the evidence says that's, that, would be, that would be statistically odd for that to actually transpire. A third thing that I note here, and this one is, is pretty significant, is the impact that it had on the children. 
those that were married and had children and then had a divorce, the children were a part of the research process, and so they were interviewed over and over again, and the results on them were devastating. Devastating. Long-term psychological damage in a lot of different aspects are the result of this. And so, when Jesus teaches on marriage, and he's talking to his kingdom citizens, one of the things that we should be able to come away with is the institution of marriage is a beautiful, God-ordained thing that we should care deeply about. It's an important reality, and we should be careful about coming up with excuses for why a marriage could be dissolved. So, obviously, there are concessions. Jesus is saying sexual immorality is one of them. Paul tells us there's another one in the, in the uh, case of desertion, of being deserted in 1 Corinthians 7. I think that there are other considerations as well to look at a marriage and try to determine what the right next steps would be for a marriage in conflict. I think the Bible does give us some different categories to think through that. But one of the things that we have to be careful about is, is basically doing exactly what Jesus is teaching against here, of trying to formulate a, a way in which we can evaluate whether or not a marriage should be pursued and maintained. <laughs> We can actually do the same exact thing that he's teaching against here in the sense that we're looking for the reason why a marriage should or shouldn't carry on. Um, I think that a lot of people who are faithful to the scriptures get uh, doctrinal convictions about these things and, um, and they say, this is what the Bible says and they, they can do great harm then there are other people who are very sensitive and very careful in their relationships and they, they want to be helpful. And so what do they do? They, they, uh, they come alongside people who are struggling, but they don't have the convictions that are needed. Here's what Jesus does. Here's what I'm noting. Two things simultaneously. On the one hand, he has the highest conviction about marriage. On the other hand, he's the kind of person that people who are experiencing adultery or divorce rush to. That's who we need to be. The highest conviction about the beauty and the institution of marriage while simultaneously being the kind of people that people who are experiencing adultery or potential divorce run to us. See, that's, what, that's who Jesus is. In that crowd that day, he has people, I'm sure, who had experienced adultery. And he has people who I'm sure had experienced divorce and they gravitated to him. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but here's what we need to do then. We need to be the kind of people that Jesus is helping us to be here who really do believe that marriage is a beautiful institution that God has given to us. We need to celebrate it. We need to gladly affirm its significance and its permanence, and we need to be the kind of people who look at the vows that are made during that ceremony and say, we will do everything within our ability, ability to make good on those promises. Well, secondly, he moves into this other category of taking an oath, of making another kind of promise. He says, here's what you've heard, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. You've heard this teaching, and it's in the Bible that when you take an oath, you make good on it. If you make a promise, you figure out how to make good on that promise. But Jesus says, I don't even want you to make those sorts of oaths. I, I simply want you to tell the truth. 
He goes on to explain it, but, but here's, what, here's what I'm recognizing as you look at it. One of the reasons why Jesus is saying that taking an oath is a problem is because what it does is it actually makes gradations of truthfulness. Meaning, if I say it a certain way, you can believe me. However, if I did not say it that way, all bets are off. If I make a certain oath, then you could probably rely on it to come true because I've promised it in a certain way. So, I don't know if you guys remember this. I have a very vivid memory of being at Sherland on the playground and making these sorts of statements where we would say, I would make some kind of claim and then I'd say to my classmates, I cross my heart and hope to die. And they go, okay, he means it then, right? If he crosses his heart and hopes to die, and then, he, then they might be like, wait a minute, I don't know if I really believe you. And then you go, well, I cross my heart and hope to die and stick a needle in my eye. Oh boy, this dude is really going to make good on this now, right? You say something where you're, you're saying, you can trust what I'm saying is true, and it's validated by the, the oath that you're taking, the kind of thing that you're promising that if it doesn't come true, cross my heart and hope to die, I'll even stick a needle in my eye. But if I cross my fingers behind my back, right, there's an out. That's what Jesus is recognizing here. People have turned the oath-making thing into an elaborate scheme for dishonesty. That we are not making good on our promises, and so we've created a structure where we can say, I'll do this so long as it meets the criteria of the oath that I've taken. You can trust my word if, if certain things are in place there. If I've made a promise, for instance, like they would do back then, let's look at it. He says, I, I tell you, do not take an oath at all. Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. He's saying, I want you to simply speak truth. So what they would do is they'd say, I, I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by the altar. I swear by all these different things. And, and, and they're making these promises. And what they're doing is they're saying, so long as this stuff is true, then you can believe my word. But if not, then all bets are off. And w w the reason why we do this is we, we understand people are dishonest. So we want to we qualify their statements so that we know, can I depend on you? When we were buying a car, I actually pulled this out yesterday because I was curious about it. I remembered doing this. We bought a car that was a piece of junk. It was a lemon. Everything about it broke. And so then we're like, okay, we got to sell this car and get another one. So I remember sitting there with the person who's doing the financing and, and they're walking through stuff and they're sliding all these papers across the desk. Okay, can you sign this? Can you sign this? Can you sign this? And I looked at this one clause in there and I was like, huh, that is so fascinating. When you sign... Uh, you know, the contract on purchasing a vehicle, there's a little thing in there that says no cooling off clause. Because they recognize, I don't want you to get up from this meeting, go home, sleep on it, and change your mind. I don't want you to go home and have a conversation with your wife and go, you know what, this really isn't a great idea for us, and come back. I want you to sign it right now so that you might not change your mind as you walk away from this meeting right here. See, what they recognize is we want to get the, the deal done. And I, I think there are a lot of unethical things that can happen at a dealership. I'm not suggesting that was one of them, but they, they recognize close the deal right now, make people make promises, and legally bind them to them. 
That's the kind of thing that an oath is seeking to accomplish. It's saying, look, we're not always honest when we say we're going to do something. So we need, to, we need to add something to it. Add something that would force somebody, compel somebody even, to make good on the promise. So swear by Jerusalem. Swear by God himself. Swear by all these different things. But, but what he's saying then is, you know, we, people are dishonest, so we need something that's going to hold them to it. And Jesus is saying, I don't even want you to swear an oath at all. Obviously, oaths are in the Bible. In fact, there are different oaths that you can take. Jesus himself swore on oath when the high priest said, I adjure you, tell us whether or not you think you're the son of God. Swear on oath. Tell me what you think right now. And he responded to that. The apostle Paul took an oath. There are times in the Bible where oaths are taken, but Jesus here then He's not just speaking about the idea of making a promise. He's talking about honesty. He's talking about integrity. My followers, when they say something, it ought to mean something. When they say that they're going to do something, they should follow through on it. They should be people of honesty and integrity. So when we, I don't, I don't know if you've ever done jury duty or been in a court situation where they ask you to swear in. I remember doing, I think I was 20 years old. I was scared out of my mind in a jury duty setting. They, they had questions about the, the nature of the case and they're going to ask me a bunch of questions before letting me know whether or not I'd make the cut. But they take a, they take a Bible, right? They take a Bible and they say, put your hand on here. Raise, raise, raise your right hand. Swear that you're going to tell the, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. And you have to take, make that oath. And I remember feeling in that moment the gravity of all of that. Like, what if, I, what if I say something that's inaccurate? What if I mislead them? And there's something about that where I was just kind of petrified by it. I was terrified by that experience. And Jesus here is saying, when you are a follower of his, you don't have to make all these incredible claims. You don't have to, every time you speak, pull out a Bible and say, Guys, I'm going to tell the whole truth here. So help me God. He says that is intrinsic to being his follower. You don't have to say, I swear by heaven. I swear by earth. I swear by Jerusalem. He says, everything you say is on oath. If you're a follower of his, every single thing you say ought to be truthful because every word you speak, you're accountable for. In fact, we're told in the Bible that we'll give an account for every idle word that we ever say. The things that we tweet about, the things that we post online, the things that, that we say in passing, every idle word is going to be something for which we're accountable. So we need to be people of truthfulness through and through. We need to be people with, who speak with a certain level of care in every arena. We need to be people who are truth tellers. Now, Jesus is asking us to do something that's quite incredible then, because I was thinking about this. Being dishonest is easy. I had a buddy who worked for a, a, a Christian company that it was a really neat thing. It was like a spiritual gifts assessment, personality profile, and then it had like a feature that was kind of like the Amazon suggestion thing for next steps in your spiritual growth. And I remember taking the test, uh, taking the assessment and one of the features about it was they would assign you a biblical character that you were like. 
And so they'd look at your personality, the way that you answered everything, and then they'd tell you, you're kind of like so-and-so. You're kind of like Esther for these reasons. You're kind of like Jonah for these reasons. And you'd get, on, you'd get only one. And so I was kind of eager, like, okay, who's the dude I'm going to get paired up with? Is it like Moses or, you know, like the Apostle Paul or probably Timothy? I'm kind of shy and introverted and those different things. So, you know, maybe it'd be somebody like that. And then I get the response back and it says, you're Jacob the deceiver. <laughs> and I'm like... Okay, okay, Jacob the deceiver, but what, what the assessment identified is, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I'm probably not going to sit down with you and just tell you a flat-out lie, but one of the features of my personality is I like to shade the truth in my favor, and it's something that I've, I've dealt with for a long, long time, and my, my wife calls me out on it, and she recognizes this, and I, so I wonder, okay, when Jesus is calling us to be a people of integrity and honesty and truthfulness, why is it so easy to lie? And what can we do different about it? Why is it so easy to lie? Well, Timothy Keller, he points out that people have different reasons why they don't tell the truth. I'll give you two that he suggests. One, one this is the one that fits with me. It's acceptance. I'm a people pleaser. I, I, I care about what people think too much, to be honest. I care deeply about what people think. My my love language is words of affirmation. So what I want to hear is people affirming the things that I'm sharing. So if there's a question that's asked me, I'm always thinking, what do they want to hear? And that leads me to be dishonest sometimes. What do they want to hear? I'm going to tell them what I think would result in an answer that they would be pleased with. And that doesn't always result in truth. In fact, here's, here's, I'll just give you one example, a real-time example. When the attorney called me on December 22nd and said, do you have the sales tax exemption? My answer, I'm on the phone. My answer was, I, I don't think I, I mean, I think I'm going to have to go through all my paperwork. That's what I said to her. I'm not home right now. I'm driving. I'm going to have to go back home and go through all my paperwork. I hang up the phone. My wife says, you don't have it, do you? The answer was, no, I, I, I don't. Why did I say that then? Why didn't I just say, no, I don't have that? Why did I manipulate my answer in such a way that, that resulted in, maybe I do, maybe I don't? Why do we do that? It's acceptance. Because the idol of my heart is, I want to say something that doesn't make me look like a fool. Now, other people deal with other issues. For instance, Keller points out the, the issue of power. Some people shade truth because they want power. They'll, they'll say something that is false, and they don't care how it affects anybody else. They don't care if you're offended by it, so long as it results in them being able to maintain power. There are all kinds of different reasons why we're dishonest, but Jesus is saying his followers need to be people who care deeply about truth. Look at verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. James will teach it like this. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you speak, there ought to be a level of honesty and integrity that people can depend upon. When your kids are asking you a question about what you're going to do or if you're going to show up for something and you tell them that, let it be true. Let it be true. If, you if you're being asked a bunch of questions at work and people are asking your opinion on something or whether you've completed a, an assignment or a task or if you're going to be able to do something on time, Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Jesus wants us to be the kind of people whose words really matter. He's asking us to say yes or no with integrity. And if we do anything other than that, here's what he's saying. 
you're in league with the enemy. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one who in the book of John is called the father of lies. He says, my people need to be a people of truth through and through. Well, Jesus here then is showing us this better righteousness. He's calling us to be a people who celebrate the institution of marriage because it is God's good and gracious plan. He's, he's asking for his followers to be the kind of people who make good on the wedding vows that they promised. He's asking his followers to be honest in, in all of their speech, in all of their communication, in all of their conduct. He wants us to be intrinsically trustworthy, both willing and able to follow through on the things that we say. So, that led me to really think about this this week. How is this good news? Right? If you're sitting in the audience that day and you're hearing Jesus teach about this, would you be tempted to kind of pack up shop and go home and go, I guess I don't qualify. Right? I've, I've you know, some would say because of um, various reasons. Okay, so think about this. There, I'm sure in that crowd that day were, were people who committed adultery because they show up in other places in the Gospels. You've got a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You've got uh, what appears to be a prostitute who's coming and uh, interacting with the Lord himself. He, the Lord attracted people who had made some pretty serious mistakes in life. And I would imagine they were sitting there in that crowd and they would hear this message and go, Ooh, I, guess, I guess this isn't for me. And I'm, I'm po- pretty positive that there would be people in that crowd who were dishonest. I even think of Matthew and his vocation as a tax collector and the things that he would have to do to make good on his vocation and, and the dishonesty and the deception that would occur there. So he's sitting there listening. How would you receive this? And how on earth could this be good news? Like how on earth could this be good news? Well, here's what I think. I think that Jesus is calling us to, to a better righteousness that many of us have already failed at. And that's still good news because the response that we should have is the same response as the disciples in John chapter six, where we say, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Yes, I've failed. Yes, I can be dishonest. Yes, I haven't made good on my vows. Yes, I haven't fulfilled the wedding vows that I made to my wife, but where else am I going to go? There's something about the Lord himself, the preacher of this sermon that draws us in. And what we come to find out is that he is the one, he is the one that we need to spend our time with. He is the one that can really help us out. He's the one who can change us. If you want to become more faithful in marriage, who do you need to spend time with? The one who is described in Ephesians chapter 5 is the one who is willing to die for his bride, even though she was unfaithful, even though, according to Hosea, she's an adulteress. If you want to honor your marriage, who do you need to spend your time with? Spend your time with the Lord who is willing to die for his bride. If you want to become more honest, how do you do that? Well, you spend time with the one who is himself truth. You spend time with the one who is full of integrity and always speaks what is right. If you want to change, the good news of the gospel is it's Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be truthful people through and through. Help us to celebrate the institution of marriage, to be champions of it. Help us to make good on our wedding vows. Help us to make good on all of the things that we say, Lord. We want 
every act of communication to be full of integrity. And Lord, we, we feel the, the gravity of all of this. And so we're looking to you because we want to change. So help us, Lord, to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.